0: Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This show brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is Stephen C. Hayes, PhD. In uh, Nevada foundation professor in the behavioral analysis program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada. He is the author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles, uh, which is absolutely insane. It's like how, that's like Stephen King worthy. Like that's, that's a lot of writing. <laughs> uh, his career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition, and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of rational frame theory, an account of human higher cognition, and has guided its extension to acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, a very popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and value-based methods as a means of helping individuals uh, heal and integrate. So he's been the president of uh, the APA Division 25, which is the American Association of Applied and Preventative Psychology uh, for quite a long time, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, and the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Uh, So he has really got some incredible accolades. I mean, I could go on, there's a huge list of accolades uh, that that Stephen has acquired over the years. But the the main piece is the the work that Stephen does is interesting for me because, and I think hopefully interesting for you, because what it's really doing is talking almost about the psychology of mindfulness and the data behind mindfulness. And his work over the years, even acceptance and commitment therapy, is largely centered around how we can execute in our daily lives with mindfulness, with acceptance, with compassion, with empathy, and how these things, when we uh, when we use them properly, can be used as tools to expand our life rapidly and exponentially. So Stephen talks a little bit about uh, what acceptance and commitment therapy is and how we can use it in our lives. Uh, And then he goes into some of the, the concepts from the recent book that he just wrote called A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Towards What Matters. And in the book, he talks about the six frameworks or the six pivots that actually help an individual um, move towards their sort of highest version or their, their sort of best self. Uh, so that the, the pivots are as follows. The first pivot is diffusion, putting the mind on a leash. The second pivot is self, the art of uh, perspective talk, uh, taking. Uh, the third pivot is acceptance, learning from pain. Fourth pivot is presence, living in the now. The fifth pivot is values, caring by choice. And the sixth pivot is action, committing to change. So we don't go through them individually on this show, uh, but Stephen does give some really good examples of how to execute on some of these things with some uh, prescriptive practices. So I'm going to bring him on here in a second. But just a reminder, if you are not part of the Facebook community, guys, head on over. Uh, definitely join some great conversations. Don't forget to share this podcast episode. It goes a long way to getting uh, this this message and these stories and and these thoughts into the ears and minds of other people. So um, please share on whatever platform you're on. i don't forget to tag me. I would, have, I would love to share you and your and your message. Uh, and uh, yeah, without any further delay, I'm going to bring Steven on. Uh, but for the guys that are out there, if you're looking to go a little bit deeper, don't forget to check out the Alliance and the Men's Weekends uh, that are coming up. And if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, uh, you can apply to do so on my website conviden So thank you so much for joining me today. And without any further delay, please welcome Stephen Hayes.
1: I'm really glad to be here, Con.
0: Yeah, I have actually. My wife has uh, talked about your work for a while. She's a, a marriage and family therapist here in New York, and and she was familiar with your work. And so when when the book arrived <laughs> and landed on the doorstep, she was like, "Oh, I've I've read a lot of his uh, a lot of his work," and um my before i ask you the question that i always ask all my guests i'm curious how have you had the time to write 44 books (laughs) (laughs) that's like
1: stephen king level yeah well when i get introduced and they say that what i'm always mentally thinking is get a life dude (laughs) uh, a lot of these are edited books that are written with others and stuff but you know if you do about one a year i'm old enough that uh you eventually get to numbers like that so uh, if uh if i have my normal lifespan i'll get past 50 or something and uh but you know it's uh, I, uh you know I'm, I'm just trying to build something that might make a difference in people's lives and uh, so it's, it doesn't feel like a burden it just feels like you know, trying to make a difference. I
0: love it. I love it. All right. Well, with that said, uh, let's, let's dive into the questions. So I ask all my guests this question and it's tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: You know, it's a story I've told about, uh, talked about in a TEDx talk of mine, and it's actually in this new book, uh, but it showed up uh my awareness of it showed up only inside a journey towards you know trying to explore a place of emotional uh, openness and stuff um it, it and happened sort of as i was unpacking my own um, panic disorder but a, a couple of years into that journey of, of act and what was now known as act and it had a different name a memory showed up while doing a workshop which when i unpacked ended up really making sense of my life it was a memory of hiding underneath my bed at eight years old and hearing my parents fight in the other room uh, my dad had come home uh, late and drunk again he liked to play when he was drunk sometimes so for me that was this to this day the smell of juniper berries he was a gin and tonics guy it makes me smile because I, you know i'm their dad's home you know maybe he'll play with me but um you know, mom was mad because, uh, you know, of the adult concerns, but they didn't understand at the time. And they start fighting, and she's ripping into him about him spending our meager funds on his addiction and his inadequacies as a husband and a father, and and he's uh, threatening her with violence. And shut up, shut up. And I'm hiding under the bed. And then I hear this terrible crash. And um, I'm thinking, did did he hit her? You know, is there going to be blood? And uh, a thought came into my mind really clearly, like, like a voice almost, which said, I'm going to do something. And I immediately went farther back under the bed because there wasn't anything safe for me to do. And I saw my brother, who was 11 at the time, try to get in between them when they got like this. And uh, almost get hit. And um, turns out that crash was him, my dad, throwing the coffee table across the room. Mm. And uh, mom wasn't being hit. I actually never saw him hit her. But that I'm going to do something moment of seeing domestic violence in my home and really kind of watch these wonderful, loving people. I mean, both my mom and dad are just such sweet people, but they didn't know how to get out of their own way. And uh, dad with his alcoholism and uh, mom with her depression and OCD and stuff. And they just, you know, uh, uh, it was so, I think, terrifying to me to see grownups not being able to manage themselves that I kind of suppressed it. And um, I used to say, you know, I was eight going on 28 because I kind of made the decision these people make. Kill us, and I better grow up really fast, which I did, and uh, pay a cost for that. Big cost for it. So, it's pivotal for all kinds of reasons, having to do with kind of understanding um, a a bit, I think, about how hard it is to be human, but also making a promise to myself to do something, and uh, and it's a link to what I just said. You know, like writing those books is not a burden. I I came here to try to do something, Mm. and. When it finally came to me inside this work on acceptance and mindfulness, when I finally dug down to the point where that memory popped up and I could have it the way it originally kind of played out a little more because I pushed all that away. I mean, I could have told you my dad and mom argued and threatened violence and all that, but I didn't really know how hard it had hit me. You know, when I finally dug down to that, then my life started making sense. I started seeing, okay, I get it. I'm not feeling particularly able to do it, just like I didn't underneath the bed, but I'm committed to doing something, and so it kind of made sense of why I'm a psychologist and
0: why I do what I do. changed my life to have that marriage yeah that way. yeah, I can imagine that that was this quite revealing and and must have put a few pieces into, into place and and into perspective for you. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can shed a little bit of light into the importance of us being able to reflect back on our past and, and do some of the work that you're talking about, because, You know, as as simple as it sounds, I think for some people it is challenging to understand why it's important to to dig into some of these memories, whether they had you know the quote unquote perfect childhood or whether they had a more tumultuous childhood. um, Can you just give a little bit of of uh, depth of uh, of context of why it's so important for the everyday person to do these things?
1: Yeah, I think you could spend the rest of Life just going over the entrails. Yeah. and I'm not sure that's helpful. But the kind of the part of the past that's important is the part that's in the present, and you know things that have happened that you've kind of adjusted to, moved on. Some of those things you just don't think about and don't need to. The the more interesting ones are the ones that it really would be helpful to think about, but you don't have access to. Or even more interesting, the ones where you kind of made a decision. I don't want to even know that. I don't even mm-hmm. want to face that. And It's not like we sit down and make that decision, but we can do it in in these little micro moments where we basically say no to our own experience. And part of our mind, you know, goes like, okay, well, uh, no. And then you start shutting down the avenues that would take you there. And pretty soon you're living your life a little bit like a pretzel and you don't even know it. You're like, why am I kind of in this distorted Space. You, it just feels natural to you, but it's not really natural because you're not free. You're not flexible. You're not able to do what the next situation asks of you. you know, because I just don't go there, you know, that kind of thing. Like, so if there is something where fear resides or sadness resides or uh, memories reside, it means. You're now not living a whole and free life. You're living a life inside a little drawing on the floor. Do not go outside this territory. And that has a cost. It'll have a cost in your relationships, your work, you know, your health. I mean, and none of us are ever as big as we can be, but our life task is to learn how to be bigger than we are yesterday. And, uh, and turns out there's a relatively small set of. Scientifically proven steps that help people do that, and if you mismanage them, your life gets smaller. Manage them life, your life gets bigger, and that's what I try to walk through in this new book. I mean, it's about act, yeah, kind of. It's about my work, kind of, but it's also just about what are the processes that liberate us or enslave us, and uh, science has given us a pretty good idea, at least of what are the smallest set that you can focus on that do the most. You know the ten or twenty percent that does the eighty percent, and that's really worth worthwhile information because it means you can have guidance from Western science about how to how to grow your own life. Mm.
0: Yeah I think I mean you know first and foremost I, I appreciate you just sharing your your personal story but also being able to unpack the importance of looking back at some of those things and and you know I'm assuming that as you kind of alluded to there there's there is a You know, there's there's a threshold, right? I think that we can look at our past and we can start to unpack these things and heal through them and work through them. But I think what you're also saying that's important is there does come a point in time where we, you know, maybe spend too much time in the past, sort of lingering on these past events and past emotions. And just from your your perspective, where do you where do you feel like that threshold is, or how do people know if they're like sort of lingering in the past too much?
1: Uh, I think it's actually a pretty easy kind of functional thing of do you feel more empowered today than you were yesterday to step up to the challenges of today? Mm. Because you're not living the the life you've lived. You're, the challenges of the past are unimportant except as in the present. So, for example, I mean, if, if you've had, you know, both in models or you personally have had relationship issues that really make it hard for you. You know to open up to be vulnerable to step forward to set limits to be yourself to you know really listen to take the perspective of others to allow them to kind of pass your defenses etc if you find that you know i really can't do that some of that is historical you can guarantee you that it is and it's not so much figuring it out as it is opening up to what does the echo of your past tell you to do right now that's not working because something's going on that's not working, and, and you know, no matter how big you get, there's more big to get. So it's not like you're going to be, you know, the Nobel Prize-winning relationship person tomorrow. I mean, none of us uh, are likely to be that. But can we be a little better today than we were yesterday? And if the answer is, uh, you know, no, then exploring the past—if it doesn't land that way—Who who cares? I mean, let the past that's important show up in the process of living itself be open to it and you'll catch it you'll catch it in the restrictions you feel and the freedom that you have today and that's the part that's really important anyway and because then it gives vitality to it instead of you know oh god i gotta go back and figure out everything that happened well you'll you'll have a particular take on it and you'll have a different take later and so what does figuring out even mean i mean memories actively change as you remember them i mean it's you're you're chasing something that isn't just stored like stones in a box you're looking at echoes of the past and the present that are actively being rearranged and so uh, if you ever get into the science of memory you realize how uh, fruitless it would be to write, like actually try to go over the past because it's gone and unless you filmed yourself at every moment and have time to look at the darn thing, uh, you're going to distort it even as you go back and look at it. But that's not a worry if what we're doing is liberating us now. In that context, some of these uh, old fragments of you know pain not fully experienced
0: or of horror not fully seen uh, is is worth our attention. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great perspective and and such a, a simplified you know way of of explaining both the importance and and the validity in in knowing uh, when those things are integrated. So maybe give some some perspective for the listener. You know, I think one of the things that really stands out about your work is the importance of being able to meet some of these memories of our past but also being able to meet some of the parts of ourselves that we would tend to reject or avoid or you know the the parts of ourselves that we dislike the main part of your work that i really appreciate is that it really sort of outlines and says when we reject those parts we we pay a price there's a consequence to that but when we can when we can face them and integrate them with acceptance and, and compassion, then there there is a, a space for us to grow. So can you just give some insight into the impact, first and foremost, of what happens maybe psychologically within us when we do avoid the parts of ourselves that we dislike or when we avoid the, the past uh, trauma or the past experiences that we had that we dislike?
1: Well, avoidance is one of the most toxic processes that, that we know. It's the most life distorting. In part because if you're good at it, you don't even know you're doing it. I mean, if you really avoid well, avoidance is invisible even to you. That's how well you do it. And so you kind of are living your life inside uh, the metaphor I was using that little line drawn on the floor as if you're living inside a cage and, and, and you don't even realize that you know you're you're restricted. But the message that you're giving yourself. When you avoid your own thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations, the message you're giving yourself is it's not safe to be you with your own history. Yeah, but we're historical creatures. You know, there's no delete button in the nervous system. If you ever took a psych course and you asked about the process of unlearning, they'd say, well, there is no such process There's only inhibition. I mean, if you've learned something, you're permanently changed by it. Even if you forget it, you can learn it again faster the next time which means it's sort of kind of there and so history doesn't you know isn't something you can wipe away there's no delete button or minus button in the nervous system there's only add and multiply buttons and so when you sort of do this little thing of i'm not going to have that you essentially now have given almost like command instructions to this very primitive part of your brain that says your own history, your own experience, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own memories are a threat to you. Well, you better learn to run pretty fast because when you run, your history is going to run with you. you got to go at like light speed and sort of somehow break out of this domain of existence to one in which you don't have that history. And that's fantasy that doesn't exist. So. You know as as the joke goes in you know, a sort of a frontal lobotomy or a bottle in front of me there you know the so we start doing things to try to distort ourselves enough that we don't see what we kind of are carrying right inside our own nervous system, and that's uh, not where you want to end up being and so if instead could we i think use the word compassion, could we bring a kind of kinder, more compassionate mode of mind to ourselves in which yeah there's parts of us that are hard there's parts of us that are hard to look at you don't have to wallow in it you don't spend all your time looking at it but in you know one step at a time could we create a space in which there's more and more room to be whole human beings with a history and to be able to look at your thoughts not just from them to look at your feelings not just being jerked around by them And to come into this present moment in a way that allows us to attend to what's of importance in a way that's flexible and fluid and voluntary, not just on automatic pilot. And especially attend to what are the features or qualities of being and doing that you want to put into your life? What are your values? What do you care about? And let's build habits around that. What I've just said is that small set of psychological flexibility processes that predict prosperity, or if you mismanage it, uh, predicts uh, misery as far as the eye can see in every area of life. Part of what's cool about this and what I've read about in the book is not just mental health. It's physical health, but it's not just that. It's can you run a business? It's uh, can you uh, dedicate yourself to a a diet and exercise program. Can you, you know, be a high performer uh, at work or in sports? Um, I mean, literally, we know that some of these same processes make the distinction between people who win gold medals and don't. When I was in uh, Rio, my wife's Brazilian, we went to the Olympics for the first time to that one. I saw people win gold medals doing uh, doing act because I know the coaches and I know what they do. So it's kind of cool if you can get distilled down to a really small set of processes that help you in all of these different areas. Uh, I think uh, I'm just a little too busy to have to learn 10 different things. You know, one to deal with anxiety, whole another one to deal with relationships, a whole another thing to manage my uh, work teams, a whole another thing to help myself stick to my diet and so on. So turns out you don't have to. We're not that complicated. Um it's tricky but it's not complicated and um you know one of the first steps is learning how to open up to your own history and allow yourself to have a history, because what people do and actually men the form of men doing it the single biggest one is lexithymia. what people do is is they avoid enough, and what men do is they start saying things like i don't know what are you feeling i don't know yeah why don't you know, dude why don't you know?" You're not supposed to know (laughs) like feelings aren't of importance to you. Really? Do you know how how many things you're told to do or that there's wisdom in the culture that only get kicked in? If you know what you're feeling, if I don't know you're hungry, I don't know whether or not, you know, you want more food. If I don't know that you're afraid, I don't know that you're anxious. I don't know that you're sad. You know, I don't know how to do with you and you don't know what to do with yourself either. So we've dumbed ourselves down with this uh, kind of pursuit of feel good, feel good, feel good, which eventually means don't feel at all because we don't always just feel good. Feelings Mm. include all kinds of different feelings. So it it turns out to be a really important thing, but it's not a wallowing thing. It's not a boo-hoo from morning to nine, tears per hour is the measure of mental health. It's not like that.
0: It's being able to be whole and free. It's more like that. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that last sentiment about what it's all about. Can you just for the listeners that are out there that maybe haven't heard of ACT, can you just sort of unpack what acceptance and commitment therapy is all about? And then I, I, I kind of want to dive into this concept of pivoting towards what matters, yeah. because that's really the, the core of your work, which I think is, is really what a lot of us, a lot of people that are quote-unquote seekers or just a lot of people that are maybe feeling like something is missing in their life, they're really looking for is, is a how do we shift towards the things that really matter? But first, let's just talk about the foundation of acceptance and commitment therapy.
1: Acceptance and commitment therapy is a collection of acceptance and mindfulness processes, commitment, behavior change processes for the purposes of producing psychological flexibility. And psychological flexibility has six processes there's an inverse in each one so you have six inflexibility processes six flexibility processes but i can kind of uh, walk you through them in in a long paragraph you, you need to show up as a conscious human being not just as this problem solving mode of mind your life isn't just a problem to be solved it's a process to be experienced and there's a part of you that you can touch that you already know how to do it's the kind of thing that would happen if you saw a sunset tonight, you'd look at it. And if it's spectacular, you'd say, wow, maybe you'd want to share it with somebody else. But I guarantee you, you wouldn't say, hey, there's too much pink. That, that, that cloud over there is shaped the wrong shape. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. And we have a mode of mind that we can bring to our own experience. That's this kind of wow, sunset mode of mind. It isn't just happy if you had a you know, a suffering child in front of you was talking about an abuse history. You'd say the same thing. You'd say, wow. And you probably wouldn't say, you know, just be quiet. You're bothering me. I mean, we know how to bring a mode of mind to our own experience that is to observe and describe in a way that's open and not judgmental. That's more like what you do with a sunset. So you start there. Can you then bring that to your own thoughts so that a little bit When you start having that dictator within start telling you what's wrong with you, what's wrong with the world, how things need to be different, blah, 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 there's a little bit of space to catch that there's an observer here. There's a human being who's noticing these thoughts and thoughts have a life of their own. They're easy to program. You can catch yourself thinking things that your mom or dad said or heck, heck, things that you saw on the freaking TV. I mean, you're being programmed all the time. And so, you know, if I say Mary had a little, guess what you think of? you know you're not going to make that go away there's no delete button in the nervous system if you try to think of something else like people who are obsessive do or something or us that are worse just normal folks but you know if instead of lamb you start try to think of something else what you'd really think of is "Is this not lamb it'd still be connected to lamb so you don't delete Things, you just add things. So, can you bring this kind of observer kind of perspective to your own thoughts? Now, can you do it with your own emotions? Now I'm feeling this, now I'm remembering that. And once we're there, then we have a little bit of a gap between the person who can make choices and the conditioning that you've got that gives you automatic, uh, programmed thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations. And so, from that place, can I now direct my attention? in a way that's flexible, fluid, and voluntary. That's not about getting away from anything, but just being able to focus on what's of importance. And could I focus? Would it be okay if I focus on what I really care about? It turns out sometimes those things you really care about are the flip sides of the painful things. So by opening up as the first thing you do, uh, we have names for that. Opening up your thoughts, we call diffusion. It's a made up word. means to unpour what the thoughts mean from just noticing that you have them do that same thing with emotions we call that acceptance from the Latin original meaning of acceptance which is to receive a gift like here would you accept this it's a gift of your history here would you accept this feeling even if it's painful okay thank you got it when you when you do that and then you direct attention you find towards what you care about you'll find that if you take the painful places and flip them over they almost always tell you what you care about I mean the reason why that let's say betrayal in a relationship hurt so bad that rejection being lied to whatever is that you wanted something out of relationships. And if you push that pain away enough, you'll forget even what you wanted because it'll be threatening to you. It'll remind you of how hurtful that was to lose it. So we open up, we come into the present in the way that's allows us to allocate attention. And then we move towards what we care about which you'll find in both the sweet and sad moments of your life, the heroes that you pick, the guides that you want, or the stories that you really want to write about yourself, how you want your life to go. And once you're there, now we have a pretty clear guide. It's like a flashlight or, you know, kind of a lighthouse off in the distance. What would I do in the world of behavior right here, right now, that would build habits of action? where the qualities of being and doing that I want in my life, my values, I'm beginning to put in my life in what I do one moment at a time within the world of behavior. Those are the six processes. And, uh, if you mismanage them, it's going to bite you in every area you can think of. If you manage them, life starts getting better. And, you know, we have studies now with five, six, seven, ten thousand 10,000 people over three years, five years, 10 years. And it, these processes predict basically whether or not your life trajectory is going to go negative or positive. They're not the only ones that do, but they're the 10 or 20% that does 80%. So let's focus on that. We'll add the other things later and uh, start you know, building a liberated mind that knows how to open up, show up, focus on what's important and get your feet moving. And um, that's called acceptance and commitment therapy. But it turns out it's kind of in the acceptance and mindfulness wings of what's happening in the culture. We're not the only one. I care more Mm -hmm. about the processes than the name. Uh, 50 years from now, they're not talking about ACT. That's fine. But I know they're going to be dealing with psychological flexibility because it just turns out it's so central to human functioning.
0: Yeah, can can you talk a little bit more about what gets in the way of our ability to pivot towards what matters? Because I think you... You know, in the in the beginning of a liberated mind, you, you you talk a little bit about the need to pivot, but you also talk about the dictator within. And I would love for you to speak to that because I think the the commonality that we all share as human beings is that at some point in our life there is this dictator within. You know, where there's this voice that is uh, can be overwhelming at times. So I'd love for you to speak to that.
1: Yeah, we're probably just dealing with an evolutionary mismatch, really, because that voice, that ability to sort of think symbolically seems to be uniquely human. Uh, You know, a 12-month-old baby given a name for an object will then orient towards the object when they hear the name without being trained. It's a two-way street between a name and a symbol. We're the only creature on the planet that does that. Even the language-trained chimps don't do it. After years of effort, you know, you have to train them in both directions to get a two-way street going. A 12-month-old can learn it in one direction, drive it in two. The word means something. And that was really cool in terms of being able to solve problems, cooperate. Here, would you give me one of these? You know, you can call across the room. Things will show up. And uh, it allows you then to start applying that same repertoire to yourself. And no matter how things are going, you can always say, "Oh, I should have done better. Oh, I should have had more Oh you know where you start pushing yourself around with this problem solving verbal symbolic repertoire, you start adopting a sense of self that becomes almost like a cartoon version, you know, like, "Oh, I'm like this, Well, what if there's features of you that aren't like this? you know like if I just said." For you to write down, I am, and then write down a positive attribute, not one that's just descriptive, like I'm a man or I'm X amount of years old, but one that's the kind of thing that's more like a personality feature that you have. If I then just, whatever you just came to mind, I'm like this. If I just push a little bit, like, are you always like that with everybody? Everywhere? You'll realize you're lying. You know I'm kind. You're not always kind, dude. You're not always kind. What are you doing, crawling inside a clown suit? So that's one thing. Is the dictator within starts telling you even who you are. In fact, it'll say, "I'm you." That voice within was that grabby. Plus, take that I'm kind thing. Yeah, but don't you really also mean I'm kinder? Isn't it also a comparison? How do you know you're kind compared to what or who? Well, compared to other people. Okay, so right inside the stories we start telling, good, bad, or indifferent, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're a narcissist or if you think you're the worst of the worst and lowest of the low. In either case, you're more and more alone. And that's not who we are, we're the social primates. We want to belong, we want to be with others, you know, that's how we evolved. And so this dictator within has gradually claimed more and more territory. And science and technology has put it on steroids, I think, by being, by feeding judgment, comparison, and pain, you know, three things that are really hard for us. We can now see with the computers in our pocket anything horrible that happened. We can hear all the judgments that are out there, and we can compare ourselves to everybody else on the planet. No matter how well you're doing, you can find somebody else doing better, at least according to their uh, Instagram account. You know? Well, that's that's a toxic brew. I mean, that is, makes your, it really hard for people. So the dictator within, I think, is just the echo of our symbolic learning, but it begins to turn into a conceptualized self, the storied self, which is comparative and only half true, whether it's on the good or the bad side. And it constantly invites us to treat ourselves as a problem to be solved like we'll be okay when yeah but life is happening now you mean life happens after i fix that and usually that's right you know after the pain goes away after the confidence shows up you know after the depression is eliminated the anxiety is eliminated after the memory of the betrayal after you know then i can start well when's that day gonna arrive how about today? Could it start today? Yeah, it can, but it has to be by reigning in the dictator within. I mean, I want that voice. I want it saying, you know, your taxes are coming up or, you know, that sound you're hearing in the car probably needs to be fixed. And, uh, you, you know, you got to figure out if you've got a mechanic, you're, the old mechanic you used has left. You don't even have a place to take it. I mean, I want that voice. Helping me solve the problems of living. But do I want it declaring it's me and turning my life into a problem to be solved? No, that's a bad idea. So you better learn to rein it in. And it's why there's so much attention nowadays to mindfulness work and things like that. I mean, you can hardly open up a magazine without seeing it because we need modern minds for this modern world. If we're going to carry these computers in our pocket, we better figure out what to do with horror, judgment, and comparison. Other than run away mm.
0: yeah I mean I think you're you're making such a, a valid point for how we can just like the almost like a case for how we need to be able to start to face the the dictator and, and understand it and here I almost hear what you're saying as there's a there's a place for that part to show up. And it it does have some form of a purpose and a function within our, you know, our cognitive capacity and and our ability to make daily decisions. But then on the other hand, it's like, but when we, when we let it run loose too much, then it's going to cause a mess naturally. And so let's talk a little bit about pivoting towards what matters. I know you've kind of I outlined a little bit around the, the six steps, um, but I would like to hear a little bit more about where do we start as people? You know, if, if people are wanting to shift towards a, a healthier state of being, if they're wanting to uh, shift and, and pivot towards um, living a life where their career is a little bit more aligned with what they want to be doing in the world, where do they start and what natural obstacles do you think that they're going to face based on the research that you've that you've seen?
1: Yeah, the concept of pivoting, what that's saying is even the things we do that are really horribly ineffective are not motivated by bad things. We're yearning for things and we're just mishandling it because we're grabbing at things that give us a small immediate pop at the cost of a a larger later benefit. And we're kind of biologically set up to do that. And so there's a kind of a mismatch when we get this new Problem-solving repertoire new for us, a couple hundred thousand years old, maybe two point eight million years. We know the the ch- chimpanzees don't do what your twelve-month-old baby does, so the, the, you know it's got to be somewhere in that time uh, range. But inside the things we do that are effective are something that we're yearning for, and when you see that, then you can say, "Oh, okay. Well, how could I really get that?" Like, for example. Let's just take the stories that you tell, positive and negative, about who you are, this conceptualized self, this clown suit that we climb into. When you look at this little thing where I say all the time, everywhere, in other words, you start lying. And then you start looking at things like, why do we lie about ourselves and what we do? And number one, it's ubiquitous. We're doing it all the time. Tiny little white lies, instrumental lies to get things, you know, like if you're a con man or something, okay, that's easy to understand. It's just greed. But the more interesting ones are the ones where there's no good reason for it. You know, so like you're talking and you say, uh, oh, man, I only slept five hours last night. And you slept five and a half. But you said five. Why'd you say five? Well, what you're doing there is you're saying, I'm special. See how I've had this especially big challenge. And you start, you know, different things, you know, like the burdens you have are bigger. The salary raise you got is bigger. The, you know, all these things start getting a little bit of exaggeration, a little bit, leaving out some of the details and stuff. Well, the data online are that they're mostly there to protect a self-image. And the other thing is that's really sad is if you lie to somebody, you are significantly less likely to take up an advantage of talking with them again. If you're given the opportunity to talk with them, you start wanting to talk to somebody else. You're tracking these little exaggerations. That person you said, I only slept five hours to, you're now let, okay, so what's going on? I think what's going on in this self-image is I'm special, therefore you need me. I should be in your group. I belong. So we have this yearning to belong. And if you dig into the the little self-aggrandizing or help me, I'm so weak, help me, stories that we tell, they're so that we'll be included, we'll be drawn in, somebody will be with us, we'll belong. Yeah, yeah, but the cost of it is that you're now less interested in the people that you've just done these things with. Number, You're using things that are, have a comparison. I'm not just kind, I'm kinder which means you're disconnecting yourself from the group. So this yearning to belong by telling the right story ends up biting us because we start feeling more and more alienated. If we trick people, they're fools. Who wants to be friends with fools? If we're playing the I'm the greatest, I'm the best game, pretty soon, you know, everyone's beneath you, even the people who love you because you're so great and you're so grand. Uh, What we do What we can do inside the act work is dig down to what would give you a larger, later sense of belonging and connection. And it's not the storied self. It's the awareness part of us that allows us to connect with others. Metaphorically, when you look at somebody and you see consciousness there and they see consciousness in your eyes, that moment of connection. And you probably think of times with a a friend or a lover or, or somebody who really cares about you, where you really felt connected with them in that moment. Well, yeah, because consciousness allows us to connect with others. So could instead of trying to put on the clown suit verbally, could we strip it down to this basic sense of connection? And what if We spend a little more time with building out a sense of self that allows us to take the perspective of others, to view ourselves with kindness, to sort of show up behind your eyes and connect with the fact that other people around you are behind theirs. And then allow that to build an actual sense of connection and relationship, not just people's objects to be told stories to. Well, we can do that. And that's a pivot. It takes the energy that's there of yearning to belong, and instead of trying to feed it with this short-term pop, but long-term hollowing out of mm-hmm. you know self-aggrandizing and pathetic stories, can we pivot that energy in a different direction? Pivot is the name for a hin- the pin and a hinge, and just like a door hinge, you know, you push this direction, but the door goes that direction. Could we? kind of swing it around and move it towards a greater sense of consciousness and connection and actually build the sense of belonging, taking the time to connect with the people around us and instead of manipulating them, listening to them, sharing with them, connecting with them. And the, each of the flexibility processes are like that. They, they take an energy and they put it in another uh, direction. Okay, one more of the six. Let's let's do feeling. You know, like a, a little baby, you know, given something, you know, fiddle with. Well, taste it, lick it, you know, put it, they'll they'll be feeling, they'll be sensing, they'll be experiencing, right? Well, but once we have symbolic language, we can easily say this feels good and that feels bad. And then the next step is, I just want to feel what's good. But then the next step is but that means I I dare not feel what's bad. And so we start sorting our feelings into the good and bad and running away from the bad ones, which when we do feels a little better, but it isn't increasing our capacity to feel. It's just that we feel relieved that we ran however we ran, drink a six pack, everything feels a little better. You know, avoid a task that will be challenging, immediately you feel relief. You feel a little better. Yeah. But is your life getting bigger? Is your capacity to feel going up? No, it's going down. Both those things. And so you have this kind of squeezing down like a funnel is getting smaller, but the, but the yearning that's inside there is not bad. I mean, we want to feel it's just, we don't want to feel bad stuff. Yeah. Unfortunately it didn't come that way. And what we found actually in our research is that soon enough, People, if they're avoiding bad feelings, they start avoiding good feelings too. I mean, it's so sad to watch. Like if you compliment somebody who's been running from anxiety, they feel a pop up and then it plummets down because the bigger you are, the harder you fall. That feeling of joy will go away. What if they find out that actually I'm not who i say I am? What if they see me? So you get this whole kind of thing where eventually... Instead of feeling only the good stuff, you're not feeling anything at all. And what instead we do in the act work is, what if we took the time, to, instead of trying to feel good, to learn how to feel good? To really take the time to savor, to sense, to feel, and do that in a way that's open. Because it doesn't, you can't sort it. You know, if you're going to say, I'm not going to cry when my mom dies. You know, you can't smile when you're complimented because it's part of the same well. It's like if you can't open up to what your body gives you, what your history gives you as, a, as an emotion, and you're just going to let that dictator within sort them out into the good and bad, pretty soon that whole domain of emotion becomes foreign, which is why, and I, I was mentioning it is sex typed. In fact, men tend to end up more so than women because we give women more space to feel than men do from the earliest days uh you know pretty soon it shows up as i don't know it's alexithymia and um you know men will very easily end up in the i don't know space on both the good and the bad side in other words i am so so uh unfamiliar with feeling i now am ignorant and that's not where you want to end up, not with this really important channel that kind of sensitizes you to the parts of the past that might be relevant to the present. Feelings are really critical to being able to navigate your, uh, your life. Uh, and the cost of uh, only feeling good is eventually not being able to be guided by feelings at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, and then you, it's so interesting because of what you're saying right now really emphasizes the, the point of being able to look at some of the places in our life where, where we maybe rejected moments, you know, being able to face trauma that happened, being able to to heal through some of those things, but also to be able to heal through some of the internal narratives and dialogues that we have going on that are abusive or that are hurtful towards ourselves and the people in our lives. Because when we, when we avoid looking at those parts of ourself, you know, really what you're saying is you can, you can sort of see that over time what happens is it starts to diminish our ability to even feel the joyful parts of life. And I've I'm, I'm sure that you've seen it, but I've seen it time and time again with countless men where because they have been avoiding insecurities or shame or guilt or, you know, they haven't been able to grieve something that happened in their life, whether it's a loss of a father or, you know, loss of a father figure as a child that has carried on and has numbed out their ability to really feel uh, deeply in any given moment whether it's the good, the bad, the ugly, the sad, the happy, whatever it is, um, but it diminishes their ability to really feel into those, those spaces and places. And so, yeah, I I love the, the, the pivots that you talk about and you've outlined them in the book in, in a very clear way. And, I'm wondering if just just quickly you can just touch on um, the, this idea of presence and living in the now. And I think that for men especially, this is such a a, a very important skill set to cultivate. But I'm curious if you can shed some light on uh, how, maybe like what gets in the way of our ability to be present and then just sort of quickly touch on, on what we need to do to start to cultivate a depth of presence in the moment
1: yeah i think what we're what happens with presence is that we bring this instrumental side and men are encouraged to do it very early on i mean you you know this kind of horrifying research with if you take infants and you dress them up in blue or you dress them up in pink uh, the blue babies are allowed to crawl away from the adults and to explore but if the blue babies start to cry, they're not picked up. The pink babies are kept close, but uh, if they start to cry, they're picked up. So, you know, we're at that age when we're being taught, you know, you get out there uh, and uh, be instrumental and um, your emotions are not relevant. And, uh, you know, we internalize that and we start doing that. And, you know, we want some of those skills and, uh, but we don't, we want to put them on a leash. So this instrumental part gets turned into, in order to be oriented, to be here, I have to figure out everything that happened in the past that uh, brought me here and everything that might happen in the future that I need to avoid in order to be effective right here, right now. In other words, I want to get oriented to being in the now by figuring out the there and then of the past and future as conceptualized by this problem-solving mind of ours. Yeah, but uh, meanwhile... (laughs) Things may be here, right here, right now. That while you're in often problem-solving land, you miss, and you kind of miss the opportunity to smile at your kid, or to kiss your spouse, or to you know show up to the the joy of uh, of achievements, or 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 to be able to relax, or to be able to play, or be able to connect with others, and so. Uh, you know, life's lived in the present, present. there's no other place to be. And yeah, we should it isn't like thinking about the past or thinking about the future is a bad thing, but disappearing into it uh, different thing. And the problem- solving mind will do that. It'll take us out of the present, into the manufactured past and future. The research has been done on that. You know, part of you thinks if you could just ruminate about it and figure it out or worry about it and get it all planned out, you'll be more instrumentally effective. In fact, because it takes you out of the present, it's a net minus. You actually are less effective when you're disappearing in the rumination and worry instead of taking the time to learn how to be here now. And, uh, uh, Yeah, plans, fine. Yeah, learning from the past, fine. But, you know, within limits and only to the degree that it's actually necessary and of help. So some of the things that we try to train in that that are coming into the culture of just, for example, trying to start with something that's always present, which is your own body, to feel what your own body is doing. Uh, That's not such a hard thing and, and taking a little time to do that. And some of the contemplative practice traditions, mindfulness traditions, give you those skills of being able to bring the attention back to the present moment. Following the breath, for example, particular meditation thing, simple bodily experience. One that I like because it's just so simple and, and you can do it without any, you know, without interfering with the talking and things like that. The breath is a little hard to do that way. It has an unbelievable uh, uh cool data set around this, and it applies even to children is and you could try it people listening right now can try it is to uh, first when you're not interacting with people, focus on the soles of your feet and and what it feels like to be sitting or standing with the soles of your feet and focus on one foot then the other foot then both feet then the other foot then. and in each case take time to really kind of sense what the soles of your feet feel like, what shape they have, are they more pressure here than there, you know, just to really kind of open up to it. And what happens is a kind of grounding. Kids can learn this skill, and it, it has an effect on automatic, kind of emo- emotional, impulsive kind of behaviors. You know, things start to seem to slow down, uh, not in a in a negative way, but in the sense of everything's a little easier, a little clearer. You know, kind of like the Matrix, or maybe that. But the thing that comes to mind is, or you know, everything just starts coming at you at a speed where you can interact with it a little better. That's the promise of some of these mindfulness skills that allow you to be more fully in the present. And you can practice something like just being aware of the soles of your feet when you're in an argument with your boss, or when you're about to go into a really difficult business meeting, and grounding it we even say don't we the, you know i felt grounded there's something kind of a, about being connected in that way and some of our words you know like being humble it becomes a word for humus it's dirt and you know, it's like having your you know your feet planted uh literally can help us as a kind of as a metaphor being here fully in the present can help us then interact with the challenges as. You know, curveballs are thrown, or things come at us that we didn't expect. That we can be as effective as we know how to be when we're doing sports-related or high-performance work with ACT. This is a big focus: is being fully in the present. And uh, I talked about uh, watching somebody win a gold medal in Rio, and I know that was a big focus of the coach of that particular person was uh, being fully in the present, so that. What the competitor was doing was now able to be responded to as opposed to off in your head, uh, you know, worrying about the point that you just missed. Um, And we have data on that even with NHL level hockey players, points per minute on ice can be predicted by your skill of being emotionally open and in the present. And you can see why. If I'm playing the last shot, I'm going to miss this shot. So can I come back here? now with my attentional skills being able to be fully allocated yeah you can but to do that you have to kind of let go of the entanglement with thought and emotion and come into the now so there's uh powerful reasons to learn these skills just in your life effectiveness and uh uh, of all of them being able to be consciously present is probably uh, one of the most important pivots that there is.
0: Yeah. I think, I think what you're saying there is, yeah, I love the examples. I love the examples, especially with hockey being a Canadian boy, but, <laughs> but I do think that what you're really saying is that when we bring our, our presence to the moment and not get caught up by the mind's predilection and sort of, um, tendency to pull us towards the future, which is you know, where anxiety presides predominantly and, and where worry and, and doubt uh, preside, but but also to pull us away to the past and where regrets and guilts and, and whatnot tend to live. When we are more present to the moment, we are able to perform at a higher level. And I've seen this time and time again, and there's a ton of research that's coming out now talking about flow states. And and I you know, I love it because you're sort of indirectly talking about these flow states and our ability to experience uh, you know, deeper levels of of joy and and love, but also to experience what we're capable of from a performance perspective, which is absolutely incredible. So. Um, uh, we we do have to wrap up here, but I'm I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to leave the listener with when it comes to how to really pivot towards what what matters. I, I love the examples that you gave before about feeling into the feet and getting into the body, because I think those are, are tactical things that people can try. Um, but I'm wondering if you want to leave the listeners with anything else.
1: Well, I'll, I think I'll just leave it doubling down on the theme you just put out there, you know, that sometimes these things come into the culture in ways, and I'm, I'm playing off about The kind of male role and uh, masculinity and so forth is is that it's almost as if when we're talking about experiencing emotions, letting go of entangling your thoughts, coming into the present, you know, as if we're going to, you know, measure the success of life with tears per hour or something. That's not the way that this thing's going to land. Yeah, there are probably some tears that are worth visiting and so forth, but, you know, uh, coming into the present is a powerful way of being able to be more whole and free i think was the phrase i used earlier which is really close to how to be the best you know how to be not in this kind of judgmental analytical constantly evaluating sense but in the sense of you know you prepared show up let it go focus on what's of importance here what i really want to do here and so if you take some of what is inside our conversation and there's some other pivots we'd want to explore and so forth. You go inside these small set of processes. You know, for men, not part, what I think people need to know is this is not about, uh, you know, feminizing men or something like that. It's about how to learn, how to be our whole selves. And inside that are really cool things like being able to be a high performer, being able to be successful. Um, and do it in a way that doesn't uh, turn us into uh, people have to wear clown suits and pretend and sort of kind of hold our breath and, uh, you know, wait for uh, life to be over, you know, that we can sort of be here with a history that's complex and there's things in there that are hard. But yeah, the reason you go there is so that you can be more fully here with the things that you care about that you want to be about that you want to bring into the world with your life's moments and uh, that's that's not fitting into somebody else's model that's fitting into who you are and what you want to be about and you know the story that you want to write in your life no reason to write it as a tragedy let's write it as a hero's journey and a hero's journey means facing some of the darkness showing up in a different way and being able to Sort of bring our whole selves to the challenges that we face
0: wonderful so so well said, and um yeah, I think that's such a great sentiment to leave leave with people, and the idea that we don't have to write the tragedy and that we can we can write a different narrative, I think it's incredibly powerful and important for people to to take in, and even if that's just where we start is is just on that path of shifting the narrative that we're writing and, and the sort of script that we're writing internally and in our lives so Yeah, Stephen, listen, this has been phenomenal. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate your work. And it's just been an honor to, to have you unpack some of these pieces. So thank you so much for joining me. That was awesome, Connor. Thanks for the conversation. And for for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go check out a liberated mind: how to pivot towards what matters. Uh, we'll have some links in the show notes. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, obviously share it forward with with someone that you know would be interested in this conversation, in this topic, and and is wanting to dig into these uh, dig into these topics and these subject matters. So. Um, Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. We are on Stitcher, on Spotify, Google Play, Apple, iTunes, you name it. We're on all the platforms. So head on over, leave us a rating, review and share us. It goes a long way. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.